Take your copy of God's Word and turn to uh, Titus chapter 3 as we finish out the book this morning. Almost like it's perfectly scripted for a uh, Christmas sermon next week. I know, those who have been here a while, you're going to wonder if you're at the right church. <clears throat> we'll be in John chapter 1 next week. Uh, I know it's shocking. Prepping for Isaiah uh, on the second, uh, second Sunday in January, we'll be going again to Isaiah. All right, Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, the end of the book. Uh, when I send Artemis, or uh, Tychicus, to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works and so, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we've heard your voice many times this morning already. The reading of the Scriptures, Psalm 68, Ephesians 3, Titus 3, it's prayed in Psalm 111. We now ask that we would hear Your voice in the preaching of the Word. Would Christ be proclaimed, and we ask that Your Spirit would change our lives. For Christ's sake, amen. It's a... Uh, <clears throat> common conversation to have, I guess, in a number of different ways. You've probably heard it before, maybe you've had it, probably you've been maybe perhaps both sides of it, but where a parent asks their young kid, maybe, you know, four years old or something, did you eat all your vegetables? What's the answer? Well, yes, of course I did. And you look down at the plate, and as a parent or older person in the room, you know, did they eat all of their vegetables? No, there's no way, right? Did you eat all of your broccoli? Yes. You look on the plate, a third of the broccoli is still there. Oh, you didn't eat all your broccoli. Did you pick up all the things in your room? Well, yes. Yes, of course, Dad, I did. Go look at the room. Is it picked up entirely? No, of course not. Most of it's done, right? The lion's share of it's done. The vast majority of it's done, but it didn't get all of maybe the little pieces, the little things, the additional kind of odds and ends sorts of bits. Now, when we come to the Scriptures, the Scriptures are clear to say that all Scripture is God-breathed and all Scripture is profitable. And if you ask your average evangelical Presbyterian confessional Christian is all Scripture profitable and useful? We're going to say, yes, all of it. And you're going to agree with that until I have to preach from a genealogy. And then you're going to be like, not profitable. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. These are the parts of the Bible I skip in my personal devotions and don't actually remember any of. Um, Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, I suspect for most of us, is probably in that category. And those are the verses that we read kind of as we just try to get out of the book as we finish it, and it kind of crosses between our eyes and ears at some point, but no real memory. And that's to our shame, uh, certainly, because when God, interestingly, means all Scripture is profitable, what does God mean? Does He mean the big pieces of broccoli, but not the little pieces of broccoli? 
Does he mean the big pile of dirty clothes, but not, you know, the individual little Legos or matchbox cars or whatever they are, pens or pencils or crayons? Or No, of course not. He means all of it. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is useful and profitable for training up the man or woman of God to live a complete godly lifestyle. All right, so these verses written with you in mind for today that we would be able to look at these and see something about who our God is and what He designs for us. And I think in fitting with the large kind of tone of the book of Titus, very practical. The book of Titus is, by and large, one of the most practical books in the entirety of the Scriptures, Uh, Titus and James and Proverbs kind of being three of your main ones. Uh, And large part for that is because you have here an older pastor, probably uh, nearing kind of the end of his ministry, not the very end, he's between his two imprisonments, writing to a younger pastor who's uh, working in a very complicated and difficult place and is helping him say, this is what the church is supposed to be like. This is what the church is supposed to be. And it's really intriguing how you have kind of the shape of the book where he starts with a whole bunch of very practical things. This is what your leaders are supposed to look like. They're supposed to be holy men. We value their holiness far more than we value their gifting or their skill. Their holiness is the dominant thing that makes them useful in the kingdom of God. And then after that, kind of jumping to a whole bunch of different categories of people. This is what godliness looks like for old men. This is what godliness looks like for older women, though we won't call them that to their face. This is what godliness looks like for younger men. This is what godliness looks like for younger women. This is what godliness even looks like for those that are in the bondage of slavery. And at the end of the book, you get a whole bunch more kind of practical things again, but with this massive turning point in the middle to say all of this takes place because the Spirit of God is given to the people of God in salvation so that when Jesus saves, He doesn't just save us from something, our sin. He saves us to something, newness of life. So that when He saves us from our sin, He takes away all of the evil of our record. He takes away the record of the things that we've done, the punishments that we deserve, and He saves us to something, a new life, a transformed way of living, good works is what He calls them in Titus. And verses 12 through 15 kind of presume all of those themes, and they kind of come to a kind of, kind of little appropriate little end. It's like a Christmas present with a bow tied, the very kind of neatly packaged ending to the book. First thing that uh, I would like for us to kind of notice as we think through this is the importance of Christians being strategic in thinking about how to use our gifts, the importance of thinking strategically in how to use our gifts. Verse 12, we get to kind of see Paul doing this in some uh, tremendous fashion. When I send uh, Artemis or Tychicus to you, uh, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, Apollos on their way, see if they lack nothing. What we have here, and this is part of why so many of us tend to think this is kind of in the, we never say it out loud, but boring part of Scripture, is because what we're watching is the greatest church planter in human history play the game of chess using the resources that God has given him. 
And honestly, most of us, not really particularly very good chess players, Further, most of us don't actually know kind of our ancient Near Eastern, you know, kind of Mediterranean geography. And so the idea of him moving pieces around on the table doesn't make any sense to us. We don't really kind of think through what's actually taking place and the significance of what's happening. But there's a lot happening in verse 12. Remember, the island that we're on here for the book of Titus is Crete. It's an island that's known for uh, kind of uncouth people, uh, thus Cretans today still being kind of a, uh, an insult for kind of lazy, gluttonous, governed by their passions sort of people. Uh, today, picking up the stupid idea, which maybe it didn't have back then. Uh, but not insignificant because it did have a port that uh, if you were going to be sailing kind of from the Jerusalem side of the Mediterranean, let's do this backwards for you, from the Jerusalem side of the Mediterranean, if you were going to be making your way up to Rome, uh, this place would be kind of a significant place to be able to navigate. Uh, If you're going to be sailing, it would have a port that you could set in, you could resupply, you could rest, and then make your way all the way to Rome. So it would have had kind of strategic significance. And so to establish a church on this island would be kind of a beachhead for the gospel, uh, but would be even beyond that kind of significant for uh, the transportation of the gospel and the transportation of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. That's why this church is here. It's uh, initially planted, we think, by Paul, probably on his uh, second or third missionary journey. We don't exactly know, probably third, uh, but that's our best guess. But he sent Titus, one of his all-star kind of um, protégés, one of the men that he's raised up that's been uniquely gifted to come in and to right the ship, to get it established, to get it growing. And you understand they've had some struggles, They haven't had a a long-term pastor. Paul planted the church, but they haven't had a long-term pastor. Uh, They don't have a robust leadership team. That's why his first command given is to set up a leadership team uh, to appoint elders, uh, put a session into place. But beyond that, you even have uh, false teachers in their midst. Um, One, at least minimally, at least one that's going to get excommunicated. Uh, That's valuing their pleasures and their passions, valuing the dissensions and divisions of the church over the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so you have him kind of addressing, Paul addressing with pointed kind of sharpness to the church to say, look, you need to have holy elders that are in place so that the gospel is preserved, so that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is preserved in this place and then can be transmitted to the entirety of the world. But interestingly, Titus is not his long-term solution. In fact, actually, Paul has in mind uh, something much greater for Titus coming, and as a result, sends him, in verse 12, uh, a summons. In fact, actually, everything that's being established at the beginning of the book is about to be changed dramatically by the end of the book. Paul is going to winter in Nicopolis. Now, that's important because in the Mediterranean and this time, you couldn't sail in the winter. Uh, If you tried to sail in the winter, that's when the storms set in. That's when shipwrecks happened. And if you've read Acts, that's when Paul runs into problems. You had to shelter your ships for the winter. Uh, Ideally, you would get them on one of the islands in the middle of the Mediterranean, like Crete, get on the leeward side of the island and shelter all of your ships there if there was a port. Uh, they intend to go to Nicopolis, which is on this side of Greece, uh, if I have my map right for you. Uh, knowing that basically you can't really do much over the winter. 
In fact, the only thing you really can do over the winter is local evangelism because the entire kind of community, by and large, all of the transportation stuff would have shut down as much as possible. Any transportation that took place would have been over roads, uh, and even then, those were not as reliable as the shipping lanes. So what's going to happen? Paul wants his protege, he wants Titus there so that they can spend time together for the winter, a time of refreshment, a time of training, a time of preparation before Paul would go on to his next task and send Titus on to his next one. So strategically, like, okay, this is the pastor's conference. This is, uh, in essence, a, a, a winter-long staff meeting in preparation for the next phase of their ministry. But is it done at the expense of the church? Well, no, no, of course not. He sends instead, eh, he hasn't made up his mind, or maybe they haven't come free yet, either uh, Artemis or Tychicus. Tychicus, if you've, depending on which church you've been in. We know very little about Artemis. Um, weirdly enough, probably a very pagan name, which would have been an interesting character to have to deal with. We know very little about, but Tychicus or Tychicus, we do know a, a significant about. He's one of Paul's favorite couriers. There's probably no person that transmitted more letters of the Bible than this man. Uh, We know that he carried the books of Colossians and Ephesians. Uh, We think that he carried the book of Philemon as well. Uh, That was his job for Paul was to be one of his emissaries where he would function as a courier. The man who transmitted Scripture very valuable person, somebody that you could trust the very Word of God with uh, to take it to its appropriate place. So interestingly, as Paul is calling one pastor away, he's deciding which pastor he's going to send into their midst to take his place, to care for them, to shepherd them so that the church would grow. And I, I love these little kind of moments, these glimpses into what's taking place in the early church, because these are the kind of conversations on a much smaller scale that take place at our session meetings every month, or take place at our staff meetings every week, where we're pausing and thinking like, okay, God has given us people, and He's given us resources, and He's uh, given us challenges, and He's given us difficulties, and He's given us people that are hurting, and people that are suffering, and He's given us people that have sin, and, and how do we use the resources that God has given us the best to take care of His church? How much of it do we send to missions? How much of it do we prepay the mortgage on this building so that we can build a Sunday school building so that uh, our kids can actually meet in proper rooms? How much do we spend money on this? How much do we spend money on that? It's one of the tasks we do every year as part of the budgeting process. Is set a list of priorities so that when the budget is made, it reflects those priorities. You're going to hear about that, I think, the third Sunday in January at a congregational meeting when we present the budget to you. We do this all the time at the leadership level to stop, to pause, and to think God has given us a a list of resources. How do we spend them to the, the best of our ability and for His glory? The interesting thing I suspect is probably true for most of us is that you want your leadership to be doing that, or you want the leadership to be thinking intentionally about those things but we don't actually stop and think strategically about our own lives, right? I think that's just the most interesting thing. 
how few Christians actually stop and think, the Lord has given me a litany of blessings. He's given me time. He's given me family. He's given me money. He's given me intellect. He's given me spectacular good looks. He's given me whatever else he's given me. Thank you for the laugh. That was the appropriate response. I was banking on it. He's given me all of these things. How do I use them for His glory and for the good of the church? How do I structure my very existence in a way that is a benefit to the people of God and brings Him glory? Now, the interesting thing is, is I think most Christians want to do that. Most Christians are like, we understand kind of intuitively Jesus has saved us and we want to serve Him. But I think the interesting thing is so few of us actually stop to think about it. We never actually pause and we give, but again, how many people actually sit down and work out how much you should give? Or we spend our time, but we don't actually think about doing it intentionally in any way, uh, and we just don't accomplish it. It just doesn't happen. This is the way that it works for most humans, is that if it's not planned, if it's not prioritized, it just doesn't take place. I think it's intriguing. Now, that's part of what we get to see kind of is behind-the-scenes glimpse into the life of one of the greatest church planters the world has ever seen, constantly strategizing on how to use God's good gifts for the benefit of the church. Uh, secondly, he then applies that kind of philosophical, strategic perspective. Uh, he applies it to the specific church at hand. Okay, you're supposed to be strategic in thinking about how to obey God's commands and and how to use the gifts that God has given you, how to bless the church. Verse 13 is him literally putting that into practice for the very body there in front of him. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See, they lack nothing. Zenos the lawyer and Apollos are almost certainly the two guys who brought this letter to them. They've showed up with a letter from Paul and said, hey, by the way, here's the letter, read this, and how does he finish it? He says, by the way, Paul says, these two guys that just gave you this letter that you could read, do everything you can to take care of them. He takes this idea of obeying God with their resources, obeying God with their gifts, and puts it into pragmatics right in front of them so that they can look at the person right there and say, who am I supposed to be serving? That guy and that guy. The two gentlemen standing right in front of us. Now, we don't know where they're headed. We don't know where they're coming from. That's an interesting part of it. We know they're probably two of uh, the more kind of significant teachers in early church history, an interesting kind of combination here. Apollos, one of the great brilliant minds of the early church, and Zenos, the lawyer. Uh, We don't know if he's a Jewish lawyer or Greek lawyer, but trained uh, to to handle the law in a way that um, most would not be equipped to do. Their ministry needs to go forward. And so what does the Lord do is commands that the church take care of these men right in front of them. Now, what would that have involved? This is a wild thing. It could have in theory meant these men would live there through the entirety of the winter, and he's asking for housing, for food, and for support for these guys for the entirety of the winter until the spring sets them for them to go. He's in essence asking for room and board. He's asking for financial provision. He's asking for them to be provided for, to be received into the church and taken care of. That the church uses their resources to care for those right there 
in front of them. I find this to be an incredibly comforting idea because, again, I think in some fashion we all intuitively know that the Lord gives different gifts to different people. Some of you, the idea of doing my job and standing up here and talking for hours every week just petrifies you. Uh, It makes you break cold sweat, right? More Americans are afraid of public speaking than they are of death. That's a statement, I guess, on pastoring in a different sort of way. Um, The interesting thing, though, is that I'm going to be candid. Some of y'all have gifts that make me sweat. The idea of being able to do what you do and do it as well as you do and to do it uh, with the calmness and the curiosity and the patience that y'all do, it, it is just mysterious to me and wonderful. The different gifts that God has given, and I, I find it to be extremely significant that when it comes time for him to have this, us to have this conversation about using the gifts that God has given us strategically, it's using the gifts that God has given you. God knows what they are. He gave them to you. He designed them for you. The intellect that God gave you, or lack thereof, He gave you that on purpose. Use it for His glory. The time that He gave you, or lack thereof. The physical health. Some of you, honestly, you're like, how do I serve God? My body hurts so bad. I hurt so badly, I can't be useful to the church. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. Even if you… If your day just consists of saying, Lord, have mercy on the people of God every day, that's a well-spent day, friends. But being intentional about thinking, what has God given me, and how can I bring that to bear for the people of God? It's intriguing what He's doing, God is doing, is kind of taking our existence and, and reorienting it so it's not just about me anymore. I don't live a life that's just designed to make Michael happy. I live a life that's designed to glorify God by serving in His church, by serving in His people. And I've been given gifts that you haven't. You've been given gifts that I haven't. Praise God for that. Now, how do we figure out how to use those gifts in the Lord's church? Being strategic about it, thoughtful, intentional, This is why we're kind of constantly reloading our nursery. We need you in the nursery, serving, use your gifts. The Lord blesses us through that, blesses the children in the church. We need Sunday school teachers. Praise God, go teach Sunday school. We need workers that are going to serve on our various committees. Praise God, go serve on the committees. We need people who are going to pray for our missionaries. Praise God, go pray for our missionaries. We need people that are serving in His church, spending our lives in devotion to God and to His people and obedience. Well, you could say, well, maybe, I mean, that's an easy sermon to preach to the pastor. Of course, you're going to ask for help. Weirdly enough, it's actually one of the more uncomfortable sermons to preach. That giving are two things that I don't think most pastors like talking about. I, I do think it's interesting, though, that the transition that Paul makes I'm sending these two guys, one of these two guys, to be your new pastor. Oh yeah, by the way, take care of Zenos and Apollos while they're there. Make sure they don't lack for anything at all. Why? This is the intriguing transition to me in verse 14. 
Let our people learn. You can tell Paul's been there. He planted the church. He still refers to them as his own people. He loves them. Let our people learn. This is what their life is to be about. This is what their mission in this place is to be about. This is what their existence is to be about. It's to be devoted not to their pleasures, to be devoted not to their reputation, to be devoted not to their 401k, to be devoted to what is the target goal for Christians? Good works. Obedience. So many of those old VBS songs are great because they teach us O-B-E-D-I-N-C-E. That, that, that's my goal. That's my target in life. My calling, my existence on this very plane of reality is to be obedient. Not by my power, but the power of the Holy Spirit residing within me, uniting me to Christ Jesus, but to live a life of good works and obedience. Why? Well, there's a specific application. In some cases, those good works are to take care of urgent needs. That's Zenos and Apollos. Urgent needs. These two fellows uh, probably spent the vast majority of their resources to even make it there. They have no means of income, so he's telling the church, take care of them. Urgent needs presented directly in front of them. But interestingly, what's the contrast to the life of good works? Is being unfruitful. That is interesting. It doesn't really talk about passions. It doesn't, it doesn't talk about uh, kind of what we're uh, desirous to do, what we're eager to do, what makes me kind of have a sense of meaning and identity and gives me a sense of purpose and help me find myself or anything of the sort like that. You have a contrast that's laid out between those that are profitable because they're obedient and those that are unfruitful because they're not. Again, friends, our culture screams at us, screams at us that you exist for your pleasures. You exist for your pleasures. It's my favorite form of commercial. This is the time of year that you get to see it. The absolutely ludicrous luxury car commercials. They're my, absolute, they're, I just, they're my favorite. They're so dumb. Uh, they would split, I think, most marriages where it's like, you know, you know how the, the commercial goes, right? The couple's there, and they're going to give each other their Christmas presents, and one's excited. I think the one that's happening right now is he gives her a puppy, you know, and she whistles and it's like some, you know, $80,000 truck that comes and the implication, he has no idea that she just spent $80,000 out of the family budget to buy him a truck. And I'm just like, man, brother, that's how you end up in my office doing marriage counseling. That's what that is. Um, Lexus has been famous for, for years. Like this is how you end up uh, divorced or in, in marriage counseling, spending that much money like that. But what they're doing is these commercials are trying to, to teach us that, that love is presented kind of in the form of delighting our pleasures. And love is presented in the form of making us feel good. Love is presented in the form of identity and value in those regards. And now in our kind of current cultural moment, this year at least, we've watched a culture that is kind of putting all of its eggs in the basket of sexual identity, right? That you... Your value are determined by your sexual identity. And as Christians, we're always going to be in a little bit of trouble with that. 
because we're the ones that are going to be following the Bible saying, no, no, it's not sexual identity that drives us. It's not our pleasures that drive us. Our, our mission in life is not to feel good. Our mission in life is not to avoid pain. Our mission in life are to be a people that are filled with good works done by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, some of you, you like to do uh, New Year's resolutions. Some of you don't. I'm one of those, but New Year's is certainly a good time to kind of rethink your, your priorities, rethink your life, and to rethink what next year's going to look like. And it's interesting, most of us will set some sort of goal. I think probably 80% of those goals in the new year usually involve weight and exercise, I suspect for most of us. Right? We eat too much over Thanksgiving and Christmas and decide we're going to go to the gym for those three days at the beginning of January. But again, not actually thinking of things that are devoted to obedience in the people of God. And friends, that's one of the joys of being in corporate worship. Now, I know there's people that are sick that are watching online. I got several texts this morning. Hey, we love you. We love the body. We're unwell. We're not going to come infect anybody. Praise God for those people. I love that. Thank you for not infecting us. We're very proud of you. But it is one of the benefits of being in a room with people side by side is that you can look at each other and say, these are the people that God has placed in my life that I can obey him by caring for them. Now, sometimes that just means praying for them, praying by name. Sometimes it can mean making a phone call or sending them a card. Sometimes it means difficult conversations. Sometimes it can mean all sorts of different things, but caring for each other. These are the people that God has placed in your life. But not just these people. I'll be, again, a bit more pointed. Some of us, I think, probably would be a bit disturbed if we got kind of our annual statistic, you know, if the Lord gave us a, a statistical report on your life this year, uh, how many times you actually talked about the gospel with somebody who didn't know it? I mean, some of us would be actually really disturbed because we would think, oh, I mean, at least what, I don't know, 15, 20 times? And look at it and be like, zero, hmm, that's, I don't like that. Uh, and I suspect, again, for many of us, it's because we don't actually intend to do it. We don't, we don't kind of set habits and patterns of this is a person I can reach. Who am I, who am I praying for? How can I reach them? How can I tell them about Jesus? It's not in, we expect it to just kind of happen. And of course it never does. Now, the great reality with these sorts of changes, as I make fun of, the gym's gonna be filled for the first week of January, but by the second week of January, it's back to its normal attendance. Nobody goes anymore because self-discipline isn't enough to drive change. Many of us in the room know that. We've had those experiences where you say, I'm, I'm just gonna do better. Have fun with that for the three days that your will is strong enough to handle it. I'm just, I'm not going to do this thing for the next two hours until you go do that thing. We all know how that is. And it's interesting that Paul, the Lord, gives two kind of responses, uh, ideas that are going to kind of drive change like this, the, the power behind it, so to speak. I think they're interesting. One of them is a bit surprising. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. 
Interesting that part of the dynamic of the, the care for the body and the obedience together and the good works that are produced is the love that Christians have for one another. We're supposed to delight in each other and have affection for each other and care for each other. You'd be amazed at how many of Paul's books end in some form with love each other. Show signs of affection for each other. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Be together. Tell each other that you love each other. Be family. I think it's intriguing that that's part of kind of how the body is designed to operate. Now, I'm going to, again, be a bit pointed. For a church like ours, I got to go faster. Uh, For a church like ours, we've grown, we've, we've doubled through the time of COVID. That's really hard because, honestly, some of you in here have no idea who's actually here every week. I'm not mad at that. I understand particularly for some older folks in the room, everyone is younger and you, we all look the same. I'm not mad at that. I get it. Um, that's part of why we have a, a picture directory to help as much as we can. And that's part of why we try to do more activities than just Sunday morning, but so that we get to know each other so we can love on each other. But this is maybe where I might encourage us to go one step further is to begin to learn the art, I know I'm getting myself in trouble here, of being demonstrative about that love. You see, this is the thing is that a lot of us, we absolutely adore each other, but we never show it. We never say it. I mean, we think it all the time, but we never say it. Um, Some of you know this, you've grown up in families where you never say you love each you never tell each other that you love each other. No, you know you do in the back of your but you never say it. I'm like, ah, what a, what, a, what a mistake. What an error. Friends, maybe in 2023, one of those tasks that we can learn together, part of the good works that we can learn together, is to figure out how to be demonstrative with the love of Christ to each other. To show each other the love of Jesus in a way that we tell each other and help each other to understand that you're not alone. That, yeah, your life is hard, but guess what? You've got people walking it with you. And that's what everybody in this room is. You know, God willing, I mean, maybe Jesus comes back and we don't get to do this. That'd be wonderful. But God willing, in January, we're going to have four baptisms. And as part of those baptisms, we're going to be talking about these little ones that we're promising to them, we're going to be the ones to help take care of you as you grow up. And it's like somehow we're comfortable making that sort of promise to the children, but we're not comfortable with the adults. To be able to look at each other and say, I'm here to help you walk. I'm here to help you obey. I'm here to be your support when you're discouraged. I'm here to help dry your tears. That's why I'm here. And guess what? That's why you're here because the Lord is designed for us to be a body together. Now, that in and of itself is a hard thing. And honestly, there are institutions all over our country that try to rally people around political causes to do that, or to to rally people around social causes to do that, or to rally people around some form of ideology to do that. And it's interesting, where does Paul end this? He ends it with the grace of God, A, a benediction, a blessing, 
If we're going to be these kinds of people that are intentionally thoughtful about how we're going to use our gifts for the glory of God, if we're going to be these kind of people that try to use our specific gifts for the glory of God, if we're going to be those kind of people that try to use our specific gifts intentionally to the very people that God has placed in front of me, if I'm going to be that kind of person, I have to be fueled by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I don't have that kind of the gasoline of the gospel in my, my, my car. I'm not going anywhere. There's no, there's no power in that vehicle. There's no energy. All you have is your will. All you have is your own efforts. And friends, you'll run dry pretty quick. You'll burn out more quickly than you would care to know. It's intriguing. This whole conversation has to be kind of flavored with this reality. Jesus saves sinners of whom you're the worst one you know <laughs> because you know your own heart. I'm the worst one I know because I know my own heart. And this Jesus saves us, saves us from sin and saves us to good works by the power of the Holy Spirit. One of those ways that he's going to equip us to do that is that he shares meals with us. Again, a shared meal for the purpose of empowering us with his very presence. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your supper. We thank you for the body of Christ. We ask that you would forgive us for sin and that you would equip us to serve you in grace. We pray in Jesus' name.